everybody, I'm Alistair Stevens, and this is the second lecture in our Story and Star Wars seminar series. This week, our dark middle chapter, The Empire Strikes Back. Before we get to all of that, I want to thank everyone for hanging out and for live-tweeting the movie with me on Tuesday night. That was an absolute blast. I have honestly never had as much fun watching A New Hope as I did hanging out with all of you who were able to make it, and talking about the movie, all these new observations, these new perspectives, and of course, new running jokes. I'd also like to thank you all for your correspondence. I'd like to thank you for all the emails that I've received and all the conversations that have taken place over on the StoryWonk forum, and of course, for all the ratings and reviews that you kind folks left on iTunes. Over on the StoryWonk forum, before we get to the subject of today's main lecture, over on the StoryWonk forum, there has been some great discussion following last week, and I wanted to dive a little more deeply into a topic raised by Alan, thank you Alan, who highlighted the common and almost ubiquitous criticism of Star Wars's moral simplicity. As is often said, Star Wars features good guys, features bad guys, and that's it. And Alan's absolutely right. This moral polarity is so well understood, so well defined, so frequently commented upon, that Star Wars is the go-to text when you're discussing this subject. Except, it occurred to me this week, that's not actually true. We'll see this more fully as we move through Empire, of course, but even in the span of A New Hope, the approach to and depiction of morality is more sophisticated than we might expect. Luke is our hero. He is noble and virtuous and selfless, but also impulsive, naive, and interested to some degree more in the notion of heroism and fame than in the actual good he might do. Han is the poster child for the disreputable scoundrel archetype, whether he shoots first or second. Even Leia is complicated. She's abrasive. She's difficult. And the Empire? Well, they're dedicated, it would seem, not to capital E evil, but control. They're still concerned with politics, with keeping the various planetary systems in line through fear. Theirs is not primarily a cause of destruction. Now, don't get me wrong. A New Hope is not the movie you'd go to for a thoughtful and nuanced analysis of morality and internal conflict. This is no Game of Thrones. But it's much more complicated than is often thought. And that, as I mentioned last week, is a product of the cultural response to the text rather than the text itself. The movie urges us to see Luke as a kid with a lot of potential who comes good in the final act, but looking at the posters and the lunchboxes and the toys and the parodies, looking at Luke Skywalker the cultural artifact rather than Luke Skywalker the character may well lead us to believe that Luke is Superman crossed with Galahad. The truth is that he's more interesting than that. The same, I think, can be said of Vader. He's evil, yes, and he's certainly our antagonist, but judging by the text of the film, he isn't solely dedicated to the pursuit of that abstracted capital E evil. He isn't even really the sole big bad. We can infer the presence of the Emperor, of course, but Vader works alongside Tarkin and the military hierarchy throughout A New Hope. He seems to be entirely dedicated to the pursuit of the Empire's goals, their social mandate, which sets him apart from villains like Voldemort or Sauron, who are 
primarily interested in their own power and dominance. Indeed, there's a moment after the Falcon has been captured by the Death Star where Vader talks with the Imperial officer on deck and describes the presence he hasn't felt since. He then turns and walks away without a word, and there's a definite sense in that moment that he is setting aside his immediate responsibility in order to pursue something personal. Even when he duels Obi-Wan, he doesn't seem to be consumed by hatred or by fury, as you might expect, or glee even, but rather by a sense of inevitability, a sense of destiny. As he says when he's fighting Obi-Wan, I've been waiting for you, Obi-Wan, we meet again at last, the circle is now complete. There's a sense of purpose to what he does, but it doesn't seem to be joyously or riotously evil. And it seems to be serving, if anything, a sense of order, a sense of right. There seems to be a way that Vader believes the universe should be ordered, and he is striving to order it thusly, but not to his own benefit, primarily. There are a number of different inferences, I think, that we can draw from Vader's actions throughout the movie, and, and most specifically from his interaction with Obi-Wan during the duel scene. There's various speculations that we might offer, but it's difficult to look at that exchange or to look at Vader's actions throughout the movie as a whole as being purely black hat evil. Even force-choking Admiral Motti was more a demonstration of the force and, of course, a response to the Admiral's insult, his, his veiled insult, than an act of vengeance itself, and Vader releases Motti at Tarkin's instruction, obeying even then the hierarchy in which he finds himself. Vader's position within the Empire is ambiguous. And that leads, in turn, to a certain moral complexity, to a certain variance in his action, and a certain space, a speculative space, where we might infer different reasons underlying his actions. Certainly, even if we gloss over A New Hope in the most superficial way, I don't think it's fair. I don't think it does due justice to this text to see morality in the Star Wars universe in quite these polar binary terms. And it's odd, honestly, that the cultural commentary that's accreted around this text does lean so heavily on the good guys wear white and the bad guys wear black. Particularly, of course, since in the span of this movie and the next movie, well, the costuming choices are a little more complicated than that. Add to those two primary forces of quote good and quote evil, the moral ambiguity of Uncle Owen, who we discussed a little during the live tweet on Tuesday night, throw in the scoundrels and pirates of Mos Eisley, the Jawas, the Tusken Raiders, even the stormtroopers themselves, and you have a much more complicated moral landscape than might be expected even before we get to Empire, which of course doubles down in every possible way on everything that I just mentioned. In all of Empire, the closest we get to unambiguous and uncomplicated good, I would argue, is Leia. The closest we get to evil is Vader, of course, he's always going to be at the head of that pack, but even then, he's willing within the span of Empire to negotiate with Lando, with Boba Fett, rather than simply destroying them. He's a pragmatist, and pragmatism is one of the most interesting things that we can explore through the lens of The Empire Strikes Back. We'll talk a little more about the explanations offered by our cultural response to Star Wars in just a little while, but 
for now we must always remember, Star Wars is never quite as simple as it might appear. So let's get into a structural analysis of Empire before we look more closely at the stories. Without credits, Empire is also about two hours long, about the same length as A New Hope, though a little longer. The structure, though, is much more fragmented. It's much less straightforward. Broadly speaking, the story, I think, splits into three acts. Hoth in the first act, Dagobah, the asteroids, and the arrival at Bespin in the second, then Luke's arrival on Bespin, and the escape in the third, though those act breaks aren't as tight, as clean as they are in A New Hope, partly because the story is just so much more anarchic. So we conclude the first act at around the 35-minute mark, and I would argue it's specifically the escape of the Falcon from the hangar in front of Vader after the Battle of Hoth, of course, and then the flyby of Luke trudging through the snow. That is the moment where the music changes, that is the moment where the tone changes, that is the moment where the transition is indicated. The second act then lasts an hour, almost a full hour, in fact, until Luke arrives on Bespin and Han is frozen in carbonite. It is no coincidence that those two events happen back to back. That feels, even as I'm describing it here, a little counterintuitive because it always feels as though Han getting frozen is much closer to the end of the movie than it actually is. There's a problem, I think, with the pacing of this film that tends to front load our experience. The back half of the film, or certainly the back third of the film, feels like a series of, of nested consequences, one inside another, where we're unpicking all the threads, unbuilding all the blocks that we've established through the first two thirds of the movie. That's not a bad thing, by the way. That's just not a choice that you would usually go to unless you were building toward a cliffhanger, which is, of course, exactly what we're doing. The structure does show us, though, that this remains Luke's story. He is our protagonist. He defines the action and the overall narrative arc. And it also shows us that our focus is much less tight this time around. Luke is our protagonist, but he is not our sole hero the way that he was back in A New Hope. A quick check of the scripts for the two movies reveals that in A New Hope, Luke has just over 300 lines of dialogue. In Empire, he has almost exactly half that number. Han's lines, meanwhile, go from 150 in A New Hope to 200 in Empire, while Leia doubles from 60 to 120. That is not, of course, definitive, since it says nothing about the length or the significance of those lines. But it's indicative of the movie's swing away from a lone protagonist to this somewhat more diverse primary cast. Luke, though, is still our protagonist, and this is still his story. We begin with him, we end with him, and we're still exploring the same essential conflict that we discussed last week, though more on that, perhaps, a little later. As I said, though, Empire's structure is dominated by that one major element. It doesn't end. It isn't, in the traditional sense, a complete story. We'll talk next week about the ways in which you can meaningfully examine the metastructure of Empire and Jedi, and even arguably the metastructure of the entire original trilogy, but since we're focusing this week on Empire, we have to acknowledge that it is in some ways incomplete. It is, in some ways, unsatisfying as a piece of narrative. 
Now, this unfinished conclusion to Empire is most often described as a cliffhanger. I will describe it that way myself within the span of this lecture, but I wanted to kind of break away from the format of this lecture for just a moment to address the story nerds in the audience. And honestly, I assume that's most of you since you're listening to a lecture about story and Star Wars. Technically, the end of Empire is not a cliffhanger. It is something else. It is a game changer. We live in a new world because of the events that we have seen. The difference is difficult sometimes to pinpoint, but it comes down to this. The atomic unit of narrative, the smallest unbreakable element of narrative structure is the beat. In a beat, which may last a half a second, may last five seconds, may last 30 seconds perhaps, in a beat, Two opposing forces clash, and one emerges victorious. When that one emerges victorious, the beat is resolved, and we can go on to the next beat. If you break your story between beats, then technically you haven't left a cliffhanger. If a person is literally hanging from a cliff, if there is an unresolved contest between two narrative forces in the moment, this is the most present narrative uh, strand that's taking place, if that conflict remains unresolved, that's a cliffhanger. If the conflict is resolved, then you have a game changer. All of our immediate narrative beats are resolved at the end of Empire. We are instead facing a new world. Everything is different now. For more on beats and this kind of fine-tooth comb approach to narrative structure, I guess I recommend my own podcast, The Journeyman Writer. You can find that over on storywalk.com if this kind of thing feels interesting to you. So while the end of Empire may not technically be a cliffhanger, it feels like a cliffhanger. It feels like we are suspended. It feels like we need the next part of this story. And we'll get it, just not for a while. So let's look at the story that is being told here. We pick up sometime after the events of A New Hope. Usually it is thought that uh, three years have passed since the Battle of Yavin, the destruction of the Death Star, and that seems broadly consistent. I think you can see an appropriate amount of character growth in all of our primary characters, in fact, and certainly the relationships seem to have deepened uh, in an appropriate way. We must note, just as a part of due diligence, I guess, before we get into the breakdown, that Lucas didn't originally intend for Vader to be Luke's father, or indeed for Leia to be his sister. If you go to the original Lee Brackett draft of Empire, written in 1978, Anakin Skywalker, who is not at this time Darth Vader, those are separate characters in this version of the script, Anakin Skywalker appears as a Force ghost to help Luke. That draft, written by Lee Brackett, was written based on the treatment that Lucas himself gave to Brackett, so it's very likely that she was working from his notes. If you're interested in the process behind these movies, in the stories of Star Wars, if you like, rather than the story of Star Wars, I recommend uh, Michael Kaminsky's book, The Secret History of Star Wars. The link to that is in the show notes. That, by the way, to tangent for a moment, that is why we must be so skeptical of the Star Wars reader response, particularly the kind of reader response that you get from dedicated fans. Sure, it's fascinating, intellectually, to pick apart the movie and try to explain the inexplicable, or to draw connections between things that are disparate. Consider Obi-Wan's comments about Stormtrooper precision back in A New Hope, a joke that went around on Tuesday night as we were live tweeting the movie. Only Imperial Stormtroopers, we are told, are so precise. 
And that is a joke now to us because stormtroopers can't hit anything. That is one of the elements that Star Wars has embedded in the popular culture. Stormtroopers can't shoot straight. And it's tempting to look at that line in the context of the prequel trilogy, in the context of what we know about this universe after the fact, and build a theory. We say, okay, Obi-Wan remembers that troopers were clones and awesome. Those guys were clones, though, and these guys aren't clones. These guys are just recruits. We're 20 years out from the Clone War, and that's why they're bad. Obi-Wan actually remembers when stormtroopers were super precise. Now they're not. And that's not an invalid bit of speculation. It's important. It's interesting. It's absolutely compelling, save for one important thing. It doesn't pay any attention to or give any weight to what the story is clearly prompting us to believe. Stormtroopers are supposed to be intimidating and dangerous. They're not always, in the movie, thanks to some shaky execution and sometimes a lack of clear intent, but they are obviously supposed to be, or little that happens in the course particularly of A New Hope is convincing. But we have an explanation. We've figured out why Obi-Wan can say this thing that contradicts our experience of the movie. But we have an explanation, and explanations are always satisfying, so it is tempting to ignore what the film is saying, that stormtroopers are dangerous, that they are legitimate threats, and accept instead the rationalization that clone troopers were cool, but these guys are jokes. We cannot at any time allow our speculation about this text to eclipse the text itself. Yes, the execution is sometimes flawed. Yes, we might wonder why stormtroopers aren't as precise as we may expect them to be. But stormtroopers still have to be a legitimate threat. Otherwise, the whole fabric of A New Hope unravels. And I want to be very clear here. I love this kind of speculation. I'm a huge fan of canon welding, of explanation, of rationalization. I dig the unified Pixar theory or the Star Wars ring theory I mentioned back in the introductory lecture. Those insights, those debates are important if we're to have a vibrant academic discourse surrounding pop culture. But it's vital if we're to preserve the acuity of our critical response, if we're to give this text the proper amount of respect, that we separate that kind of discussion from the text itself. That being said, it doesn't change the story before us. There's nothing in Empire that directly contradicts the version of events that were given in A New Hope, though we must pay close attention, I guess, to how we're forced to view Obi-Wan in the light of these changes. We'll get to him a little more in Jedi, but for now, in A New Hope, there's no reason at all to believe he isn't entirely straightforward, entirely honest, entirely admirable. Now because we retcon the meaning behind his words, he seems sly, complex, and because of that change, we're led toward the kind of theory which suggests it was Obi-Wan who murdered Owen and Beru, not stormtroopers, in order to motivate Luke. This, I think, is why sometimes our, our response to Star Wars is as complicated as it is, because the text itself is engaging in the kind of retroactive continuity that the fans are engaging in. The text itself is speculating about its own textuality in a way that encourages us, positively encourages us to do the same. But we, we must be disciplined. So we open on 
Hoth with Luke and the Tonton and the Wampa. It's a decent enough sequence, narratively speaking. We have the influence of the antagonist present from the start in the form of the probe droid, and we have immediate conflict that leads us into the inciting incident for the Dagobah subplot, the vision of Obi-Wan, as well as giving us, through the probe droid, the inciting incident for the, I guess, what we'll call the Han plot. Then we transition to what is arguably the special effects showpiece of the entire movie and what is arguably the special effects showpiece of the entire series, the Battle of Hoth. It is a fun sequence. It's not particularly narratively dense in as much as the Battle of Hoth itself doesn't really tell us anything that we don't already know. We know that our heroes are being hunted. We know that they are scrappy and resourceful while the Empire is as well-equipped as they are evil. The Battle of Hoth takes us through our first act, and we part ways. Luke pursues his story on Dagobah with R2-D2 by his side, while Han and Leia, Chewbacca, and C-3PO try repeatedly to escape the Empire. We'll talk about that story strand in just a few minutes. Let's focus first, though, on Luke. Before we get to Luke's story, though, I have to break narrative focus again just for one second to celebrate Yoda. In Frank Oz's long and storied career, I would argue that he has never given a better performance. Yoda works immediately, works intuitively, is capable of enormous, astonishing, genuinely astonishing depth and subtlety. That's not story relevant, but I would regret not saying it when I had the chance. Let's all take a moment to enjoy Yoda. After our awkward introduction to Yoda, we arrive at his hut and the truth is revealed. And Luke is immediately whiny. He's appealing to Obi-Wan's force ghost that he's ready for training, but Yoda is reluctant. Though even then, I think we can see from Yoda's final objection that Luke is simply too old to start the training, that there's something discouraging Yoda from taking on this new student, and it's not just Luke's impetuous nature. We're seeing from Yoda, I think, Something more than we saw from Obi-Wan, though their experiences, superficially at least, are very similar. Nonetheless, Yoda and Luke train together, Luke learns to wield the Force, and finally enters what is framed as the threshold of his training, the point of no return, the cave. He ignores Yoda's advice to leave his weapons behind, ever impetuous, ever unwilling to surrender his own agency, and inside the cave confronts a vision of Vader, the battle, Luke decapitates Vader, only to see his own face within the mask. It's a striking piece of metaphorical storytelling, of at least non-literal storytelling, in a movie which usually takes a much more direct approach. A lot has been made of the mystical or metaphorical significance of the face in the mask, that Vader is the mirror of Luke, that they are fundamentally on some level the same person. And there's a certain amount, I think, that one might gain from those discussions on a metaphorical level, but in the fabric of the film we can't forget that what it is is primarily foreshadowing the reveal at the end. It's drawing a personal connection between Luke and Vader, and it, like the scene between Vader and the Emperor, is simply priming us to believe Vader's words even as Luke tries to deny them. There is, I think, a metaphorical significance. There may well be, one might argue, a mystical significance, an almost philosophical significance to Luke's face behind Vader's mask, but we can't overlook that 
primary value, that primary narrative weight, which is foreshadowing the big reveal at the end of the movie. We're investing already in our conclusion in a way, arguably, we didn't invest in our conclusion back in A New Hope. The third act of New Hope sits companionably alongside what went before, but we don't really build to it until we hit the briefing scene. That's when everything is framed. I guess when I say that we don't build to it, I'm talking about through Luke's perspective and Luke's personal story. Obviously, in the fabric of the film, we are building to it through the destruction of Alderaan, but for Luke and his immediate POV, we're not really foreshadowing it in quite the same way. This is a much more emotional beat and a much more emotional climax, so foreshadowing it here and foreshadowing it between Vader and the Emperor later is important, is arguably vital. So Yoda calls Luke out on the problem that we've identified in the first movie, his lack of focus, his lack of presence, his desire to be somewhere else doing great things. We should pay close attention to that, and we should also pay close attention to what Yoda has to say about the Force. When he says during one of the training sequences, the training sequence in which Luke tries to lift the X-Wing from the mire before Yoda himself does it, Yoda says that the fact that the X-Wing is larger makes no difference. And in saying that, I think he's genuinely saying something very important about our understanding of the Force. And it's simply this. The Force is magical. The idea that the size of the object being lifted has no bearing on the difficulty of the task is unintuitive. It breaks our understanding of how objects in the physical universe interrelate at the most basic level. It breaks our understanding of how the world works. If Yoda is right, and we're cued, I think, to believe that he is, then this is one of the most definitive statements on the Force as a genuinely magical, non-intuitive, non-physical power. The rules that we would intuitively apply to the Force do not, oftentimes, apply. I'd also urge you to pay attention to one of the oft-quoted, rarely considered lines of Star Wars, do or do not, there is no try. This, on the one hand, just sounds cool. As a statement of intent, it's an awesome thing to say. But on the other hand, it's a little hollow. Surely, the trying is an essential prerequisite for the doing of anything. In the sense that the trying is merely the commission of the act, don't we always have to try before we do? In the context of Luke's conflict with his own sense of himself, though... I think this line takes on an interesting alternative meaning, because trying carries with it a connotation of a certain reflexive self-awareness, a sense that you, in the doing of the thing, are mindful of the fact that you are doing the thing, aware of the fact that you are doing the thing, and simultaneously aware of both the success and failure that potentially await you. To Try is to be aware of one's action in the moment rather than fully committed to the action. Trying is not a focused, in-the-moment action because it requires us necessarily to be aware of our own context and effort. Trying is essentially, one might argue, unfocused. Do the thing or don't do the thing, but don't, Yoda seems to be saying, in the moment between, be diverted by your own struggle against the thing, the sense of your place in the world, your personal narrative. And that's exactly the kind of unfocused self-reflexive thought that causes Luke problems in the first place. 
It's not the doing of the thing. Ultimately, he does everything he sets out to do. It's the way that in the doing of the thing, he is aware of himself as an agent in the world. He is aware of his own motive force, of his own power, of his own importance, and he seeks greater power and importance. That's what his desire for heroism through the first movie is about. So here we see, in a very simple line, do or do not, there is no try, a suggestion that instead of that mindful self-awareness, instead of seeing ourselves doing the thing, we ought simply to do it. We should also consider the last moment of Luke's training. On the one hand, he seems to have grown somewhat. He's not at that point as interested, it would seem, in abstract heroism, in cool adventures, but rather in simply saving his friends. On the other hand, of course, he still believes that he alone can save them. He's still taking responsibility for his agency rather than surrendering his will, his wisdom, to the Force. He's still seeing the Force as a tool rather than a guide. That is, throughout, the challenge that Luke faces. That is his internal conflict through the span of this film. That concludes, essentially, Luke's story on Dagobah, and now is probably as good a time as any to address the timing problem. Throughout the Dagobah and escape sequences, the Luke story and the Han story, if you will, we're getting clean cuts between scenes, usually without new establishing shots. And that kind of cinematic vocabulary generally implies that actions are happening at the same time. Look at the beginning of the movie, the way we cut between Luke and Echo Base right at the beginning of the film, or how we cut between any sets of companionable actions in the first film. When you cut back and forth with those clean lines, you're generally suggesting that things are taking place at the same time, and that is how we cut back and forth between Dagobah and the Falcon in the middle of the movie. The problem is, that timeline is problematic. To look at the film, it seems as though Luke has been on Dagobah for maybe an afternoon? maybe two days at most. The key to this, I think, can be seen both from an understanding that these cuts do not necessarily imply that time in each story is equivalent, and also to look at what happens as the falcon floats away with the trash at the end of the Han story, or I guess approaching the midpoint of the Han story, Boba Fett sees the Millennium Falcon flying away, and we're supposed to believe that Fett gives chase, but he's on Bespin before they are along with Vader, and the plans are already in place that will keep Londo's mining enterprises out of Imperial hands. Londo even says when we first see Vader on Bespin, that brilliant moment as the doors open and there he is behind the dining table, Londo says that Vader just arrived before Han did. So, sure, we can speculate about the possibilities of faster-than-light communication. Vader has some measure of holographic faster-than-light communication with the Emperor, but the whole plot about the Death Star plans and Leia's appeal to Obi-Wan in the first movie suggests that such technology isn't widespread. Thus, I think it's arguable, at least, that the Falcon takes days or even weeks to reach Bespin after being dumped with the garbage, not the brief period implied by the cutaway to Luke's training on Dagobah. That, to be clear, is the film's fault. I also think 
it's the right choice. <laughs> I think there's enough space in the narrative for us to understand that more time has passed, but the film is edited in such a way as to maintain the pace and the dynamism of the essential plot. If you're not thinking about the timeline, then the movie moves along much more swiftly and much more purposefully than it would if we kept cutting back and forth with new establishing shots indicating the significant passage of time. So this is the kind of compromise that writers and movie makers and editors are called upon to make. In this instance, I think they get a pass for it. Is there a better way of editing these two sequences, these two parallel storylines alongside each other? Perhaps, but honestly, I think it works well enough. So what do we get fundamentally from Luke's story, from this separate story that occupies much of the second act? Well, we get a much deeper and more subtle understanding of the Force. We get a sense of what the philosophical, mystical, metaphysical stakes will be. We see Luke grow in power, and by Yoda's insight, we're led to believe that the more powerful Luke is, the more danger he is in. We also see, I think, given the most charitable interpretation, that he is more easily swayed by personal loyalty and love than by an abstract loyalty to magic. He believes in himself and his friends more than he believes in the Force. So let's leave Luke's story to one side for a moment and look instead at Han's story. Luke's story is the narrative heart of the movie. It is the story that we are here to see. But Han's story provides much needed action and levity. The stop-start episodic nature of their adventures, the asteroid field, the Minox hiding with the garbage, the arrival at Bespin, it gives a great deal of pacing to a story that would otherwise consist of Luke talking to a puppet in a swamp. Now, don't get me wrong, I would love the Luke and Yoda version of my dinner with Andre, but Star Wars, in order to maintain its tone, needs to also maintain that high adventure, swashbuckling spirit and pacing, and Han's story does that, does that really quite well. There's a lot of interesting world building and storytelling, but it's generally a fairly thin and insubstantial kind of plot until we get to Bespin and begin the final movement. What I'd highlight if you're watching the middle of the film is how much this feels like a fantasy story rather than traditional science fiction. I made the distinction between the two last week and this sequence, this entire plot strand emphasizes it. Hiding in the cave and fleeing from the space slug, hiding from the evil wizard out of sight, feels much more like Wesley and Buttercup in the Fire Swamp than, say, the nebula battle sequence at the climax of the Wrath of Khan. The other thing we're tracking through the story, of course, is the developing romance between Han and Leia, which started back in A New Hope. We were reintroduced to it back in Echo Base on Hoth, but now it's developing into something more. That relationship, too, perhaps indicates that more time is passing than we might expect. Otherwise, Leia really comes around very quickly indeed. The two have an enormous amount of chemistry, and we're building toward one of the most singular and memorable moments in all of Star Wars, which we will get to in due course. Overall, though, the Han story doesn't give us a great deal to dissect. It works structurally well enough, but without the Luke plot to give Empire depth and purpose, all of these misadventures would, I think, feel somewhat flimsy, somewhat inconsequential. Paired together, though, they keep us moving through the middle of this film and give us an interesting point of inflection as we approach the third act. 
So in our first act, we're all together on Hoth. Then we go our separate ways. And I'd argue that the midpoint in this film, right slap bang in the middle of act two, comes during Luke's glimpse of the future on Dagobah and then the immediate cut to the arrival on Bespin. We get from both stories their midpoints, I think, back to back. That is when our timelines seem to sync up again. And that's certainly what drives us into the back half of the second act and ultimately into the third. This midpoint does come a little later in the story than you might expect, five to ten minutes later, in fact. But that makes sense because of the scale of the Battle of Hoth that dominated the first act. If you cut that out, if you cut the story back to its narrative essentials, then the midpoint would appear much closer to the actual middle of the second act and much closer to the middle of the entire story. The other thing achieved by this midpoint is that it switches focus and it gives primacy to the Han and Leia story because suddenly they, after arriving at Bespin, are controlling the pace and the shape of the movie rather than Luke. That situation will continue until Luke arrives on Bespin as well. So we'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little about Lando Calrissian, particularly given the discussion we had about uh, moral complexity back at the beginning of today's lecture. Lando, in fact, is a morally complicated character even before we realize his betrayal of Han and the others to the Empire. We are primed by Han to see him as a scoundrel, as a thief. But the man we meet is roguishly charming, yes, but he's much more of a leader. In fact, the ways in which he interacts with the residents of Cloud City suggests a kind of benevolent monarchy. He's even willing to set aside his personal distaste for the Empire and sell out his old friend Han to keep his people free and safe. One of the most striking moments is when he gets on the calm and gives this public address, advising people to simply flee. It's an interesting moment of moral complexity for a morally complex character. That, as I mentioned back at the beginning of the lecture, is a much more mature and complicated approach to morality than we've been trained to expect from Star Wars. There's a lot of running around on Bespin, both before and after the reveal. We have C-3PO being disassembled, then retrieved from the Ugnaughts by Chewbacca, then the capture, then Lando's explanation, then the reveal that it's really a trap for Luke, then the trip to the carbon freezing chamber, and then, finally, we arrive at one of the great scenes in modern fiction. Han's response to Leia's declaration of love was famously worked out on the set while shooting between Harrison Ford and director Irvin Kirshner. The version of the line that appeared in the shooting script is much, much less impressive. Ford, in this moment, clearly understood that less is more. Now, that is not to say that it was an uncontroversial choice. Carrie Fisher was reportedly infuriated on set that Ford was rewriting the dialogue, and George Lucas insisted that the movie be screen-tested with both versions of the scene to see which one the audience preferred. By all accounts, the response was unanimous, and the I know line has now gone down in history. Well, I say the response is unanimous. Somewhat famously, I suppose, screenwriter Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote Empire Strikes Back, does not care for that line at all. He, I'm comfortable saying, is mistaken. Ford is actually brilliant throughout this scene, and a close second for me to the I know line is the way that Han calms Chewbacca immediately beforehand. It is such a human and vulnerable moment, and it's so well earned. 
it's also pretty much the last time that Harrison Ford will commit to his performance in Star Wars, which is a little sad, but given what he's called upon to do in Jedi, it's understandable. More on that next week. What the I Know line demonstrates is an understanding of emotional immediacy. He's not talking to the audience, which is something Star Wars does not infrequently. Think of Luke's audience-oriented complaints, for example. In that moment, though, Han is talking to Leia. And he's demonstrating not just his love for her, which is evident, but also his trust and his respect, qualities which are far more important in their relationship and far more important in this moment. I love the scene, and I could honestly talk about it for hours, but instead we must move on. Lando has a change of heart and arranges the escape for everyone but Han. Luke battles Vader in the carbon freezing chamber, then out on the emergency platform before learning the truth about his parentage, no spoilers, losing his hand and his lightsaber, and falling to the underside of the city. He is rescued, and we escape, uniting the separate storylines from the second act in a unified climax. Structurally, too, we must note one of the most impressive and comprehensive dark moments in the series. The dark moment is the moment right before the climax of a story when everything seems lost. Empire, as a whole, generally serves as something of a dark moment for the uh, reversal of fortunes that we'll see in Jedi next week. But specifically, the dark moment in this film is impressive. Han is frozen, Boba Fett has taken him, Luke has lost his hand and all hope, and is moments from death, and is saved in that moment by his connection to the Force and to Leia. I talked last week about the ways in which we can tell from the starting and ending points of any given story, sometimes tell who our protagonist is. We can see from where we begin and where we end the shape of the arc that we have described, and we can do that absolutely in this moment. Luke stripped of everything, stripped of his own identity, stripped of his own agency, having lost his hand, having lost the symbol of his connection to the Force, is nonetheless connected to it, is nonetheless connected to Leia, and that saves him. That's a powerful thematic insight. So what is the story of Empire? Well, it's hard to say definitively this is only the first half of the story after all, and trying to distill that fully developed narrative is difficult. We'll talk about it next week. We'll talk about it after we've looked at Jedi. But considering how we might look favorably, theoretically, upon Luke's impulsive decision to try to save his friends, it's striking that he doesn't save them. He is, in fact, saved by them. Now, contrast that with our intuitive understanding of Western storytelling. Imagine that we weren't watching Star Wars, but we were watching a buddy cop police movie where at the beginning of the third act, the chief warns our heroes off the case. He tells them that if they continue to investigate, he'll have their badges. We, as an audience, are primed to side with our protagonist. We are primed to understand that our protagonist or protagonists are going to take the right course of action. We want them to rebel, and we want them to succeed. And that's what we have here in Empire, except that Luke doesn't succeed. He demonstrably makes things worse. And when we consider the plot of Empire, we see, I think, that Luke did the wrong thing by leaving Dagobah, by taking, and this is key, personal responsibility. If we match that against Vader's speech while Luke clings to the emergency platform, we get an interesting thematic contrast. On the one hand, we have the peace, the serenity of 
the force of acceptance. On the other, Vader is arguing for the cessation of hostilities and the bringing of order. One is passive, one is active. It seems clear by this point in the story that we're actually looking skeptically toward action at all, that sometimes the abstracted good can be found in passivity, in the path of wisdom. That seems counterintuitive to our understanding of how stories work, though arguably I think you can track that, that theme, that inspiration, back to the inspirational text that we described in last week's lecture. But more interestingly, I think, it prompts us to consider a third path. Perhaps in the end, victory comes not from a complete abrogation of self and submission to the Force. What did Obi-Wan accomplish after 20 years in the Yundland Wastes? What did Yoda accomplish after at least 20 years on Dagobah? But rather, in the melding of wisdom and of purpose, the melding of belief and action into a new and greater unity. We'll take a look at how that informs our understanding of Jedi and the series as a whole next time. That is it for this lecture. We will gather together on Tuesday evening at 9 p.m. Eastern to watch Empire and live tweet the experience. As I said, last week's live tweet endeavor was a lot of fun, so I hope you can join us. And if not, then when your Twitter stream lights up with a thousand I knows at around 11 p.m. Eastern next Tuesday night, I can only apologize. And I'll be back next Friday with a lecture on Return of the Jedi. Then the following week, we'll live tweet that movie. And the week after that, we will have our first live video discussion in which we will discuss the entire original trilogy. We'll be able to ask questions and chat live. That is going to be a lot of fun. Stay tuned for more information on that. If you have thoughts in the meantime, you can contact me privately via email at podcast at storywonk.com or you can stop by the Storywonk forum where there are always great and edifying discussions to be found. Thank you guys so much for listening and for all your support. I will see you on Tuesday. Until then, may the Force be with you. Thank you.